Kristen Ulmer was a pioneer of extreme skiing in the 1990s. One of the best big mountain skiers ever. Unnaturally comfortable in the air. She had just the right personality, just the right look, and just the right twisted relationship with fear to pull it all off. Ulmer was the embodiment of a whole new way of skiing, earning the label as the best woman you've ever seen, which she really hated because she actually set out to set the bar for men as well, which she often did. Primarily through her show-stopping appearances in two dozen ski movies like this one from TGR, Ulmer shook up the world by going bigger than the guys. I considered her on par with the best male skiers of that era, says fellow Hall of Famer Scott Schmidt. There isn't a female big mountain skier today who isn't standing on her shoulders. Welcome to the Middleway Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Goodman. This podcast is about seeing the world through the lens of interconnectedness. It's about recognizing our common humanity and discovering pragmatic solutions to improve well being from the individual to the collective. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to the Middleway Podcast. It is such a treat to have on today's guest, Kristen Ulmer. That little video clip that you heard at the beginning of the episode, that was from Kristen's induction into the US Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame in 2019. Kristen was recognized as one of the best big mountain skiers in the world for 12 years and at one point was named the most fearless woman athlete in North America for her mastery of not just skiing, but a range of extreme sports, including ice and rock climbing, paragliding, adventure mountain biking, and more. When she retired in 2003, she ended up spending the next 15 years studying Zen Buddhism. And this experience, along with her experience as an extreme athlete, led her to the wonderful and important and so supportive work that she does now as a facilitator and speaker, where she helps people broker conversations between themselves and their fear. And that's what we get into in this episode. This episode is definitely one that stuck with me long after we finished recording. It has still stuck with me as I'm recording this introduction right now. And I suspect that it might for you as well. And that's because here, Kristen is sharing with us how to manage, actually, that's the wrong word, as well, Kristen will correct me during the episode, how to be intimate with one of the most fundamental experiences that we have in our life, which is fear. And Kristen believes that our fear shows up virtually everywhere in our life, in our emotions, in our patterns of behavior. And also, especially when we're in those moments of being in flow, as it's referred to in athletics, or we might say when we feel connected or at one or totally in the moment, that's also a healthy relationship with fear showing up there. One of the big takeaways for me from this episode and digesting it over the past couple of weeks is really 
the importance of feeling and being with our fear and how we're relating to it. Kristen really helps us to think about how to do this by thinking about personifying fear. How would we treat fear if it were a person? Would we be judging it, shaming it, rejecting it, trying to shrink it in some way? Would a person want to be treated like that? Or as people, do we want to be fully seen and accepted and felt and loved for who we are? And Kristen kind of walks us through thinking about how we can fall in love with our fear and our all of our emotional experiences. So this is really a thought-provoking, or maybe we should say an emotion-provoking conversation, and I hope that it is useful for you as it was for me. So without further ado, the one and only Kristen Almer. Okay. So I have the honor and great pleasure of being here with Kristen Ulmer. Kristen, thank you so much for joining the Middleway Podcast. It's a pleasure, Matthew. I have so many questions that I want to get to with you, but I wanted maybe first to start with your background. Um, we're going to be talking, I anticipate today, about fear and our relationship to fear. And I think that you have something important to say about this and some, some, cre some credibility and some street cred on this topic. So can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? What was that like before you're doing the work that you do now as a facilitator and teacher? Let me start by saying, because I think it needs to be clarified up front, that the new word for fear is anxiety. <laughs> Nobody's calling it fear anymore. I call it fear, but um, when we're talking about fear, we're also talking about anxiety. We can use those words interchangeably. Um, so a lot of people think of fear as being scared or afraid, but that's just one way that fear manifests. It can also manifest as what people call anxiety. So now going to my background. So I was considered fearless. I was a world-class professional athlete. I was uh, considered the best woman, big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years. And what does the word extreme mean? It means that if I were to fail, uh, I would either get seriously injured or die. And so I definitely look like I knew a thing or two about fear and what to do about it because I was considered fearless. And I, I believed my own hype that I was fearless, but I actually wasn't fearless. Sure, we'll talk about that later. Um, I was also voted the most uh, uh, fearless, I guess we could call it, woman athlete in North America, beating women in all sports disciplines, including base jumping, ice climbing, um, paragliding, you name it, surfing. Um, and that was uh, also adding to my, I guess, reign of terror during my athletic career. So I don't believe that you learn from experience, you learn from reflecting on the experience. I retired in 2003 and I started studying Zen voraciously for the next 15 years. And during that time, I was reflecting a lot on what my experience was as a professional fearless, I put that in quotes because I wasn't, athlete, um, and figured out a thing or two, kind of put the puzzle together on um, what causes uh, fear-related issues, anxiety disorders, all of that. And everything that I'm about to share with you and your audience is actually not my personal philosophy. 
it's, I learned a, a technique when I was studying Zen called voice dialogue. And I have used it for the last 20 years to broker conversations between people and their fear. And using this voice dialogue, I've asked fear, like, why is it causing so many problems in humanity and in people's lives? And so everything that I teach now, I've gotten directly from those conversations and asking fear what it needs in order for it to calm down. Um, so my, so basically my background is three things, my athletic career, studying Zen, and then conversations with fear, helping me put the puzzle together, bringing this information to you all today. Mm. Well, I definitely want to dive into that model and your approach to working with fear and how you broker those conversations. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what brought you to Zen after your career as a professional extreme sport athlete. What what drew you there? And and it sounds like you were really immersed in that practice for deeply for a long time, studying pretty diligently. When I was a professional skier. I remember more than once sitting on the chairlift or at the top of a mountain and looking at my skis and looking around me. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, what am I doing? This doesn't seem right to me. Uh, it was, I realized that I was learning nothing about myself except for hedonism and the grat gratification of my massive ego <laughs> and working through some pretty severe childhood issues through, through taking huge risks and getting a lot of attention for it. And I, I got to the end of my ski career. I actually went to Burning Man in 2003 for the first time. And I'm like, I'm wasting my life. And, you know, at this point, I was super famous, making a ton of money. I had my own television show. I had four different monthly columns in four different ski magazines around the world as a writer. It's really hard to get a monthly column, much less four. And I'm like, I... I'm not learning anything. I'm stagnant. I don't want to do this anymore. I came home and I quit and I started studying Zen. They say that you don't find Zen, Zen finds you. And it it picked me and it was kind of a runaway freight train for me. I, I just, I dove into the deep end of Zen practice because I wanted to figure out what I'd learned from the last 15 years of my life being a professional athlete, um, especially because I had survived. I mean, a lot of my friends were were dead from these sports a lot hundreds um two of which i saw die and and i'd had 55 near-death experiences like th there was just a lot of questions that i had about what i had learned and and where i was going next and i i actually now feel like my ski career was only at this point a real life education on what to do about fear and anxiety and what not to do that you couldn't get studying about this stuff in college or learning from philosophers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really why, why I, I dove into the deep end. I feel like it was just something I had to do because I'm naturally a super curious person. And I wanted to figure out what the magic had been and what I'd done right and what I'd done wrong mm -hmm. regarding fear. During that time, while you were doing these you know, extremely dangerous and risky and uh, heroic feats. Were you conscious of your relationship with fear at that time? Or was it more so when you started studying Zen and digesting these things that you really developed now this model that you use for working with fear? Um, you, you must have had some relationship to it and obviously relationship maybe that most of us don't have naturally, but I'm just curious if you were like aware of it at the time or if this came afterwards. Uh, both. 
you know, I've always been a really introspective person. I remember even at age six, I thought about my parents, these people are nuts. I'm just going to have to read <laughs> myself. Like I, I've always had this internal kind of curiosity. And um, I, I do know that people like me are called adrenaline addicts. And I, and I knew all the time, I'm like, no, that's not it. You know, I'm not into the adrenaline. I'm into the excitement. So I called myself an excitement addict. And my book, The Art of Fear, was originally going to be called My Love Affair with Fear. And so I knew I was having a love affair with fear. I didn't know the depths to which it had reached, though. And it actually was an unhealthy love affair. It was actually an obsession, maybe even an addiction. Like I was addicted to fear, like a heroin addict is addicted to heroin. Um, and I realized that I was addicted to fear the day that I was in Alaska heli skiing and uh, the weather had been bad. So I hadn't skied a single run in nine days. And I'm like, that's it. I'm going home. And I had to hitchhike out to the past to you know, trade in my heli time. And I, I hitchhiked. This guy picked me up in a van. I mean, it can't get any more obvious than that. Right. And, um, and so I spent a couple hours in this van with this person. At first it was fine. And then all of a sudden it got really dangerous. And he started screaming at me, threatening to rape and sodomize and kill me. And, and I had been so understimulated while I was in Alaska and I didn't want to be raped, murdered, you know, sodomized, but my thought process in that moment was, thank God, something interesting is finally happening to me. And I didn't, he didn't get the reaction, like the cowering, whimpering woman. I was just looking at him amused, like, this is great, right? And I realized he, he uh, dropped me off. I was fine. But um, I realized in that moment that I have a problem. And I, I am more willing to feel fear than most people, which is kind of, I mean, I don't expect anybody to relate to my ski career. I don't expect anybody to relate to me getting picked up by this crazy lunatic and, and my reaction to it. But here's what maybe they can relate to. First of all, I was more than, uh, I was willing to feel fear. A lot of people aren't willing to feel fear. Um, a lot of people claim that fear holds them back from living the life that they want to live, but that's actually not, is that's not what's holding them back. It's their unwillingness to feel fear that mm. holds them back. Fear doesn't mm -hmm. hold anybody back from doing anything. That's a really important distinction. So I was willing to feel fear. I was even addicted to feeling fear. And, uh, um, and I had intimacy with that fear too. Like it was like a lovers in a dance. And I thought I was really into the skiing, but I realized that I was just into that dance with fear that took me into these higher altered states of aliveness. And, and I, and I had that with this crazy lunatic as well. It's like, I, I just felt so alive in that moment. And that's what I ultimately craved in the skiing and what I craved in life and what I could find in Burning Man that I didn't need to risk my life skiing to find. And anyway, it's, so I realized that not only has my life been 100% a testimony to what my unique relationship is with fear, again, not a relationship that I expect anybody to understand, but taking it to other people, people's relationship with fear pretty much determines everything in their lives, their choices, their personality, their, their bad habits, their good habits, you name it. That relationship with fear, because fear is such a huge part of our lives, um, 
you know, pretty much determines everything for people. And uh, did I know what my relationship was with fear back then? Not a little bit, but I definitely know what it is now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I make it a study and a curiosity to help people understand their relationship with fear because it pretty much explains everything. Mm-hmm. How would you define fear, Kristen? How can we think about it? Because, and I think that you think about it in a different way than most of us, even so-called, you know, highly trained people like myself who are clinicians or other people um, who work with mental health or or study mental health or anything like that. But how do you think about fear and how do you think what's a helpful way for us to be thinking about it? Thank you for bringing up that question because it's important because I am so in it that I I forget that people don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, you know, pretty much everyone I've ever met assumes when I say fear that I mean scared or afraid. And I mentioned recently with you that fear very rarely manifests as scared or afraid. I mean, maybe if like a, a somebody jumps out from behind a tree with a chainsaw and a, and a white mask on, right? Yes, okay, we'll give it to you then. But um, for me, fear is just any kind of discomfort that we have in our bodies. And it could be emotional, it could be physical, um, like a aching lower back. Um, it could be heartbreak. It could show up as um, jealousy. It could show up as anger, which is fear's fight version. Or if people don't want to feel fear uh, because it feels powerless and they don't want to feel anger because it's impolite, um, the, the fear can show up as sadness. Like any kind of emotional discomfort that we have headaches it could show up as um it it's it's like i said rarely shows up as scared or afraid it's any kind of physical sensation of discomfort that we have in our bodies that is there all the time you know our amygdala is the manufacturing plant for fear and all sensory data comes through this uh oldest part of the brain first and it's all unconscious it's not it's not a thought producing part of the brain but in an unconscious flash, it'll just take in 11 million bits of data per second coming into our system. And if there's a perceived threat, it'll send a shot of discomfort called fear into our bodies. And it's, it is in our bodies. It's proven by science to first show up in our bodies. And like I said, it's just any kind of feeling of discomfort that we have. And we like to think that we're all about love but we're also all about fear. Actually, fear is with us every single moment of every single day. Um, Whether we're in denial of this or not, or willing to believe this or not, it's just always there. And um, especially in today's fast moving world, the amygdala is on high alert. There's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And to the point where I even facilitated somebody who was 10 minutes out from just finishing a 10 day Vipassana retreat, you know, uh, silence, all her, her needs met, achieving this blissed out state of just connection to herself and the universe and all that. And I said, okay, now find the discomfort in your body. And it was still there because mm-hmm. it's always there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about fear. It's really interesting to think about fear as um, underlying all of these different emotional states. And I'm sort of like, I'm with you on that. That comes that you know, very much 
makes sense to me that it sort of underlies everything. But I think, but I'm hoping you can help me understand like how it, because you're saying fear is anxiety, it's it's sadness, it's anger. Can you help us understand how fear is um, manifesting as all of those things? Is it just that those are uncomfortable sensations in our body and fear is the thing that's allowing us to avoid those sensations or like how is fear kind of everything in the body? Well, it's my way of simplifying it. You know, any kind of discomfort that we have in our bodies, I'm just going to call fear. It's kind of the, the, I wrote about this in my book. It's like, let's say um, any kind of discomfort or like popsicles and anger, you know, is a red popsicle, but the fear is the ice. And then the red is kind of the flavoring of, of the popsicle um, or the fear or the anger is the red food coloring or the, the flavor of it. Uh, it. It's said that life is made up of love and fear. And love is that amazing feeling that we have and fear is that awful feeling that we have. So we have good feelings and we have awful feelings. And if you really dissect almost every single awful feeling we have and we break it down, we'll find that there's essential fear down in the deepest recesses of the, the, of the, the ice that's making up that feeling, the, the, um, the generalized sense of discomfort, even if it's like lower back pain or a headache, you know, if I were to say to somebody how much of that headache or that lower back pain is emotional, and I usually get the number 90%, you know, and that even our physical aches and pains can be up to 90%, just that discomfort called fear um, that is, you know, we don't even want to ask, why is it here? Why not? I mean, we're on this little blue marble hurling through space. Nobody knows what's going on. We're trying to limit fear by being certain about something, anything. So we look to science or ideology and all is a way to limit fear. And next thing you know, because people get really locked in on these things that they they have to believe in order to limit fear, everybody's acting all weird and fighting um, for what they believe in. And, you know, we come in contact with difficult people all the time. Um, it's It's... There's just so much here. And if you really, really shine the light of consideration and on that reality, you'll see, of course, it's of course, this is what is a huge part of life. And we also have the love. Don't want to discount that. But when we're trying to just get to love and, and be in denial of the fear, you know, what gets lost and what uh, what kind of people do we become in order to live in that kind of false reality. Mm -hmm. So I really see my job as getting people to wake up and realize the truth about the level of fear that we have in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like the analogy of the the popsicle with the ice. Um, and I'm really hoping to, to understand this and, and, and maybe I'm intellectualizing it too much, but it's, it feels really, really important. So, um, so the, the ice almost like there's fear underneath everything 
what is it that we're afraid of with these emotions? Or am I thinking about it the wrong way? Like, what is it that, um, yeah, I guess what it is, are we afraid of feeling the sadness? Is that where the fear comes in? Or how would you kind of describe that? If we were to dissect it, we could figure out what we're afraid of. Like I've just went through a bad breakup and I'm, and I'm, my fear usually manifests as either excitement, if it's something that I'm choosing to do, like give a speech or jump off a cliff or my fear manifests, like I've pretty much never felt scared or afraid in my life, but what I feel is upset or sad. You know, like when I'm feeling um, my fear, I just cry a lot. And so if I were to look beneath the surface of, well, what am I crying about with this breakup? I would see that, well, I'm afraid that I screwed this up. I'm afraid that I'm not lovable. I'm afraid that I'm going to die alone. I mean, the, I could I could go on for days about all the things mm. that I'm afraid of, but I, I don't tend to intellectualize my discomfort. Um, mostly I just cry and feel upset. And and just uh, feel it, be in flow with it, have intimacy with it, so they can kind of work through it. The only way out is through. And yes, we could dissect every uncomfortable feeling that we have, but then next thing you know, we're dealing with our emotions intellectually. And here's the thing about dealing with our fear intellectually. We're never going to be able to figure out, I'm never going to be able to figure out which of those 11 million bits of data per second per second coming in through my amygdala is causing the fear. I mean, it could have something to do with all of humanity's fear cosmically, you know, uh, cosmic fear that's, you know, it's like the single drop of water contains the whole spring. So if I try to figure out, quote, what I'm afraid of with this difficult breakup, it's one way for me to not have to feel and it's, and I'm never going to be able to figure it out. And here's, herein lies the problem with our culture is there's book after book out there citing emotional intelligence is our, as our ability to understand our emotions intellectually and manage and control them and oddly the emotions of others. So let's start with the first part, intellectually understand. Um, I could intellectually understand what I'm afraid of during this painful breakup. And it's really new. It's only been a few days. Um, and why I'm crying and all that. And I I'm keeping a journal, like I'm, I am dissecting it, but how does that really serve me? How does that make me feel better? Um, I think that we try to understand these things because if we can understand them, then we can somehow control them, mm -hmm. but we may as well be trying to control the universe. So we're not going to be able to understand it, which of those 11 million bits of data per second is warranting the in my case, sadness, and I'm never going to be able to control it. And it's like trying to control a river, you know, why would you want to, you can't. And, uh, and so that kind of puts us in a place of top down dealing with our emotions intellectually and trying to control something that we can't control. And next thing you know, if I can't control it, then I'm going to start feeling bad about myself. Like there's something wrong with me. And now instead of being upset about the loss of the boyfriend, I'm now upset about the fact that I can't seem to get this discomfort under control. And my friends are shaming me for feeling discomfort and, and uh, fear shaming me by saying, oh, aren't you over him yet? You know, come on, girl, you got this. And it's like, what a mess. 
And um, so I can't even remember what your question was, but do you see the problem with trying to figure out what you're scared or afraid of? Yeah. It's interesting, but it doesn't ultimately get you where you want to be, which is feeling better. Yeah. I really like that. And from kind of what I'm I'm hearing and, and my understanding of your approach and how it differs from normal approaches to working with fear is that um, we're not trying to dial it down. We're not trying to to meditate it away or breathe it away or temper it in any sort of way. Um, these are all ways of control. You're saying, let's get really intimate with it. Let's get up close to it. And most importantly, let's just feel it without getting in our head about it. Um, why is that important? Like, why is that, you know, more helpful, a more helpful approach to working with fear than saying, here's a great mindfulness strategy to help you not feel anxiety anymore? Well, uh, it's, we've been dealing with our emotions intellectually for for a long time. And all we need to do is look to statistics on anxiety disorders to realize that that's probably not the best approach. So what I teach is helping people learn how to deal with their emotions emotionally. Um, it's important for this reason. And my favorite analogy, um, I'm writing another book called Anxiety Reimagined, basically reimagining a new approach to anxiety healthcare anxiety disorder healthcare specifically. And um, what we've been doing doesn't work for this reason. So emotions are supposed to flow like water through a hose, like through your body. They come from the amygdala. It's a, not a thought producing machine. They feeling comes first. Like the emotions are in our bodies proven by science is a physical sensation of discomfort. If we get busy trying to rush the process, or think our way out of it, or try to control the process, or try to calm ourselves down through spiritual bypassing, or what else, you know, letting it go, breathing in calm, breathing out your fear, kind of see fear as like a person, you know, it's first of all, offensive and rude to that person. And it basically sends a clear message like, I want nothing to do with you. Right, go and, away. You're right, not go away. And here. Yeah. And there's so many different resistance techniques. It's my word resistance. We're just in resistance to that flow of fear and all of these resistance techniques, like Elvis has not left the building. We do not get rid of fear. We cannot let it go. It is not like CO2. We get that wrong. Um, all we wind up doing is kinking the hose, like even the letting it go practice and the breathing exercises, we saturate our bodies with oxygen. We have a moment of presence. So we feel better, but we haven't let go of anything, right? It's still there. All we've done is kink the hose. And next thing you know, that fear gets stuck in our system and starts recirculating round and round. And that is actually what anxiety is. It's like fear stuck in our system when there's no more threat that just seems irrational like, come on already, you know, the, the thread is over. Why aren't you gone? Well, we kink the hose. And so um, any number of things can then happen. That fear is now agitated, upset. It will not be denied. It's going to fight back and it'll flood into any available space where it can best get your attention. Maybe it'll show up as an exaggerated version of a self it's in the form of an anxiety disorder or It'll eventually explode at the cracks as a panic attack, um, or it'll flood into our thoughts, our mind, 
And next thing you know, it's waking you up in the middle of the night, like pay attention to me, stop ignoring me. I'm going to turn up the dial until you get me out of the stuck place. Or the most interesting one, it'll show up redirected in other ways that don't even seem like fear at all. Now, I mentioned that sadness is how my fear manifests. Um, that is not necessarily a sign that I've kinked the hose and now my fear is showing up as sadness. But if it's excessive and out of proportion to my life situation, that is a sign of kinking the hose. Hmm. And so it could show up as excessive rage, you know, externally directed because the person doesn't want to feel their fear. Well, they have to feel something. And so fear or anger is fear's fight version. Um, some specialists even say emotion, the anger is not even an emotion. It's just fear's fight version, or it could show up as sadness or even depression or show up as excessive jealousy or unworthiness or, um, but it will do whatever it takes to get your attention. It'll, it'll lodge in your lower back. If that's your weak point, it'll show up as headaches. It'll make your heart race and it, it's, it'll do whatever it takes to get your attention. And that's why it's important that we deal with our emotions emotionally so they don't flood into our thoughts um, and, and cause problems in these other ways. So that and if we're dealing with them emotionally, like emotions, fear wants to be felt. Those don't want to be understood or rationalized away or controlled or fought or any of the things we're taught to do. If we can just learn how to go back to our roots, kind of like we see with animals and learn how to feel it then it's actually a very wise energy that helps us bring our A game to everything that we do. And then it just flows through a system like water through a hose. And then 10 to 90 seconds later, it's gone and it doesn't stay stuck there. Um, that's why it's important to deal with our emotions emotionally instead of mm -hmm. intellectually. Because the last thing I'll say, and this is a really big point, the biggest form of resistance to feeling fear that I see is being in our heads trying to understand and control our fear, which is what we are taught to do. Mm -hmm. It's not working. Time to try something new. <laughs> when I was preparing for our interview, Kristen, um, one of the things that jumped out to me about what you're saying, or one of the things that I was noticing underneath everything you're saying, is this kind of axiom, what you resist persists. And I feel like that's essentially what, what you're saying here. And everything in my life experience agrees with that, you know, whether it's on an emotional level, on an, on a physical level, um, it's almost like everything circles back to that. But as you say, it's, it's really hard, at least for me, not to get in my head about things. And all of a sudden now my mind is interfering with that process, taking away from my body. I'm, probably do that better than anyone <laughs> just getting too wrapped up in my own head about those things. So um, like, how do we unwind that process? How do you work with people to help to get more intimate with the raw? Um, un, uh, yeah. Just raw sensations and allowing them to, to flow. You know, the smarter we are and the more we've been rewarded for being smart, the harder it is to get in our bodies and learn how to feel again, isn't it? Um, you know, it, for, the first step is to see it, to really see what your relationship is with fear. And especially the fear that's in your body long before it gets stuck there and fades your thoughts. Um, 
there are so many different resistance patterns. 8 billion people on the planet, there's 8 billion different ways to resist feeling fear. And it's easy to see that somebody that drinks a lot of alcohol resists feeling fear, but it's harder to see it in the yogi who's um, choosing calm and joy every day. You know, that person is also resisting feeling fear. Um, and, and so it's just a matter of really taking inventory. This is the first crucial step and just discovering what one's patterns are. And that's what I do with clients. It's like, okay, I'm going to broker a conversation between you and your fear. And what would fear say about you? You know, would fear say, Hey, Matthew ignores me. He's in his head. So, so much, you know, he's just all about his intellect. And, and I'm like saying, Hey, you know, I'm trying to, you know, maybe wake him up in the middle of the night, like have a conversation with him. I'm trying to um, you know, he's maybe running away from relationships as a way to run away from me. Like, um, it, it, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. No, you're, you're absolutely yes, yes. And yes <laughs> to all of it. <laughs> no, I was recently interviewed because there was a bunch of shootings that occurred just by people ringing doorbells. And then the, the owner of the house comes out shooting, right? Like, what is that? I was interviewed for a, a newscast. And it's basically somebody that doesn't know how to handle their fear and blames other people for it. They're not staying in their own lane. It's like, okay, if I shoot this person, then maybe my fear will calm down. Um, there are some people that punch themselves in the face. They hate fear so much. Um, there are, I mean, it, it, there's first of all the resistance patterns and then the result of the resistance patterns. And if somebody has a problem and it doesn't matter what kind of problem it is in their life, the resistance to feeling fear either has something or everything to do with it. It could be emotional, it could be physical, it could be spiritual, you name it. And so the, the first way to look, uh, the first place to look is what is the biggest problem that I have in my life? And how is my relationship with fear related to this? Like somebody that doesn't ever take risks, the fear is not preventing them from taking the risks, their unwillingness to feel fear is making mm -hmm. them not take the risk. Mm -hmm. Somebody that has PTSD, the trauma doesn't cause the PTSD. Their unwillingness to feel the fear that comes from the trauma is what causes the PTSD. They're mm -hmm. in a, a internal war against their fear, you know, fear like being a person that is an unwinnable war and they could devote their entire lives to that war against fear. Um, anyway, so the first thing is taking inventory about what our relationship is with fear and I'll just pause here because I'm sure you have a million questions. Yeah, I do. And I'm trying to decide what direction to go because there are different directions. But the thing that feels uh, top of mind right now is you were saying a little bit earlier how fear gets conditioned in childhood. And then we learn how to intellectualize it, how to avoid it, et cetera. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, like how that sort of programming gets installed within us and what that looks like or what that sounds like for most people? Yes, uh, this is, when I did that newscast and they're like, well, what's the solution to these crazy people shooting people? You know, they, they didn't shoot people out of fear. They shot, shot people because they were blaming people for their fear um, rather than taking inventory in their own experiences. And then they asked me, well, what's the solution? And I, I, didn't say this, but I wish I had, 
um, I said a kind of a softer version of this. The solution is, I think that our generation is kind of lost. It really goes back to kids at this point. Like, can kids grow up and learn how to be in flow with their fear? And at this point, the answer is absolutely not. And here's why. <laughs> um, because of our pr uh, predominant belief that emotional intelligence is our ability to control and manage our emotions and the emotions of others, the first time little Johnny says to dad or mom, I'm afraid, what does dad say? There's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay, honey. Um, it's okay. Yeah. You know. It's it's all going to be okay or don't be scared. Um, right. Yeah. Basically saying to the fear, if we're personifying it, saying um, you shouldn't exist or you're wrong for existing. Exactly. And right there starts uh, an, a potential 10, 20 years down the road anxiety disorder because mm. that kid is going to start to mistrust his emotions and think that there's something wrong with him that he feels this, I call it fear shaming. We are fear shaming each other to the point where it's ruining our lives. It's like, you know, it's as real as arms and legs. And if imagine if you grew up thinking that there's something wrong with you, that you had arms and legs, you're going to have a self-esteem problem just right off the bat for just even having, in this case, fear. And you're going to start to question your body, the feelings in your body. You're going to question the nature of life itself um, just because of normal and natural fear throwing, flowing through your body. And then teachers chime in, like you can't let fear get the better of you and you've got to put that out of your mind. And, and, um, and so and there's other kids on the schoolyard that are conditioned to also be ashamed of their fear. And so if you show any kind of fear or sadness or anger, any kind of um, weakness, it's called, whatsoever, you get uh, bullied or attacked or shamed by them as well. So it's like everybody's in on it, mom, dad, teachers. And then as you get older, self-help gurus are in, in it too, saying it's not even real. It's, you know, you can make a choice to not have fear. That, that's ridiculous. No, you can't, right? Maybe for a moment or a day, but you've just picked a war against fear and set you up in a resistance pattern. Um, and so it's like the, the whole world is in on fear shaming. And so we, we don't really have any choice. And people my generation were almost too cooked. Like even I, what I teach, you know, I, I we recently recently went through a divorce, and it can, fear sh shaming can be very subtle, too. Like you got this, you're going to be fine. Well, I wasn't fine. There was no support for me not feeling fine. You know, aren't you over it yet? It's been two years. I'm like, no, I'm I'm not over it yet. You know, this was devastating. It's it's like we just can't seem to support each other's emotional discomfort. All we do is shame them for it. Hmm. And right there is the reason why we, we are not in emotional flow. 
we are fighting this mighty battle, trying to, you know, the language conquer and overcome our fear, let, you know, turn that frown upside down. Um, we don't do that. Anger will never solve anything. That's not true. Anger solves a lot of things, right? But, and then we look at the weeping woman or the guy that's punching the hole in the wall. Those are not people that are in flow with their emotions. You know, oh, I feel my emotions too much. Those are people who are in resistance to their emotions. If that mm -hmm. weeping woman is not in love with herself when she's crying, she's in resistance mm -hmm. to the emotions. And that's what she's feeling. It's like the awful feeling we associate with fear, anger, and sadness are our resistance to feeling them and our shame for feeling them. That's what feels so awful. Hmm. Um, the fear itself actually is, it's uncomfortable, but I've had an experience of fear just being wonderful. It's, it's like this alive energy. Um, one of the best experiences that we get to have here on planet Earth, sadness um, opens our heart to love and compassion for ourselves and others. Anger rights a wrong. Um, but the only version that we know of these three emotions, these three primary emotions, is their king toes, exaggerated resistance, like hysterical version. And so we don't trust them. And so it's like cyclical. You know, we, we don't trust them. And so we resist them more, which makes them fight back in weird, wacky ways, which makes us not trust them some more. And and kind of everybody's in on the madness by shaming each other for even feeling these emotions, even joy. You know, Tom uh, Cruise jumps for joy onto his, I think it was in, on Oprah when he met Katie. Anyway, Jumping on the couch, yeah. Right. And he's like, oh my gosh, he's unstable. Like, even if we feel too much joy, you know, like, no, 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 no. And, and so that is what the problem is at this point. Hmm. It's really, beautiful to think about being, I think you said like in love with your sadness or in love with your feelings. And that to me feels like non-resistance, like everything is flowing. And in that type of state, that's how evolution happens. I think that's how growth happens. Uh, but typically we're just getting in the way of that and stymieing that natural evolutionary or growth process that wants to happen through us. Yeah, I had a stalker and it was bad. It made um, breaking news, like interrupted television shows. And and uh, it was a pretty scary thing that happened um, at my house. And uh, I ran into a friend two weeks later. And he said, oh, I saw on the news that somebody put a bomb, bunch of bombs around your house, right? It was a good friend of mine. And um, he said, how are you feeling? And this person was a life coach by profession. And I said, I'm really angry. And he said, Oh, no, 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 you shouldn't be angry. You know, that'll eat you from the inside out. You need to find a way to forgiveness. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> right? Like, I didn't say shut up. I said, Hey, please don't try to rush me through my emotions because they make you feel uncomfortable. They're mm -hmm. here for a reason. Mm -hmm. I had to go to court. I mean, there's a lot of things that I had to deal with where my anger helped me right this wrong. It like anger burns hot and fast and, and helps me fight the situation. And of course, beneath the anger was a lot of fear, of course. And, and it's like my fear and my anger were an important and healthy reaction to this incredible atrocity. And yet even a life coach was shaming me for it. And he wrote me later and apologized because we, we know better. We know better. We know about spiritual bypassing. 
we laugh about this stuff on sitcoms like Serenity Now, and yet it's still taught. This is still taught to people with anxiety disorders. Choose calm, you know, and the cognitive behavioral therapy for that matter too. It's like, um, look at your thought uh, and then challenge it and replace it with something more positive. It's, it's just more of the same. And that's Cognitive behavioral therapy is the most predominant treatment for anxiety disorders there is, but it's dealing with the emotions intellectually and it's, it's just more of the same, you know, uh, spiritual bypassing. So we're just in such a bad habit right now around yeah. this and, yeah. and supported not just by the professionals, but by all of our friends. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that I'm seeing in our culture and society right now is speaking to this, what you're illuminating for us is this limited bandwidth to tolerate our experience. And I think a lot of this has to do with technology and how our phones and social media are training our attention basically to distract ourselves and to reinforce any sort of escape from our experience as it is. I think it's very human to for that to happen but that process is being reinforced and um that it seems like is just a self-perpetuating positive feedback cycle where it creates more and more of this uh fear shaming or emotion shaming or just uh trying to you know soften or temper our emotions in some way um it doesn't seem like a very uh healthy recipe <laughs> for us as human beings that it's also very hard to um to cope with i think you know given how plugged in we are to everything and i think everyone's experiencing it in some way some form or another um i oh sorry go ahead no it's true it's um and we we are all doing our best you know, self-help gurus, psychologists, your friends, your parents, the teachers. It's like everybody has good intentions. Not everybody, but, you know, and we're all um, have just bought into the belief that fear is something to be conquered and overcome and rationalized away. Mm -hmm. And we've bought into the belief that it's an enemy. And, and based on that belief, um, our reaction to it is going to be what it is, which is resistance to it. And we are just running further and further away of the reality that, yes, we're all about love, but we're also all about fear. And if we can start to really recognize that and help children recognize that, because like I said, I, I don't know that our generation is able to be saved. We're so, it's not that I actually had somebody write me yesterday and he said, it's really, really hard to feel my emotions. And I'm like, it's not hard. It's just unfamiliar. It's just unfamiliar. Um, and it's not supported by people. Like even my mother, um, she just died, but uh, I was about to give a speech in front of 1500 teenage teenagers boys, I think it was all. And I, you know, the last time I was in a high school, I was being bullied, right? I hadn't been back since. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm about to give this speech in front of all these teenagers. I, I don't, I don't have good experiences with, right? And she said, how are you feeling? And I'm about to talk about learning how to feel fear and being honest with ourselves about our fear. And I said, I feel afraid. 
And she knows what I teach. And she says, no, 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 you don't need to be afraid. You've done this a million You're times. You're going to be great. Right? I mean, she's a wonderful woman, like a heart of gold and very well-meaning. And it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just rolled my eyes. And imagine what it's like to be me walking the earth, trying to get people to stop having a war against fear. And I... Every time I, I mean, I, the subtitle of my book, The Art of Fear is why conquering fear won't work and what to do instead. And I would say 90% of the time when a podcast comes out with my work or an article or somebody's talking about me, they're like, here's Kristen. She helps people conquer their fear. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. Kristen, I will so conditioned. I will do my very best, or at least I'll set the intention not to give a misleading title for this this episode. We'll see what Thank we can you. come up with, but Thank you. Um, I, I hear you. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about kind of how you think about fear versus the cognitive behavioral model, which you're exactly right, is the predominant gold standard model for working with fear and anxiety. Um for people. And I use a lot of CBT in my work, although I also lean away from the C part, the cognitive part. Um, I tend to have a more, we would say mindfulness or compassion oriented approaches, approach to working with the thoughts, meaning not trying to change them or make them go away or anything like that. Um, But the behavioral piece in CBT is like about exposure. So what's the thing that you're afraid of? Okay. You're afraid of you know, being in social settings or you're afraid of driving, let's let's come up with some sort of hierarchy of you being exposed to that thing in a titrated way. Um, and so I'm curious how that might differ from how you would work with fear. And I actually have some ideas. Initially on the surface, I'm like, oh, we're talking about the same thing. But then as I started listening more and reading more about your work, um, I started to actually tease apart how they might be different and you're getting at something more subtle here, but I would love to hear from you if you just have any initial thoughts on like how your approach might be different. All right. I have a bunch of things to say. Let me, <laughs> we're, we're going to go back into extreme sports in just a second, but yeah. Um, yeah. let's talk about maybe somebody that is afraid of driving across a bridge. Cause maybe mm-hmm. the last time they drove up across the bridge, they had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the exposure therapy would have them drive across the bridge or just at least hang out near the bridge. Or I, I think that that is unnecessary and cruel. Um, the bridge has nothing to do with it. It's, it's only that person's, um, unwillingness to feel fear um, that is the problem and the hose is kinked and then it, it just ex- happened to explode out the cracks when his guard was dropped driving across the bridge and so getting them to see that is the first part um, let's take it back into extreme sports I did write some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear I've done both like I have kinked the hose and been in resistance to it, mostly because I was way too far out of my comfort zone more than once. And it was too much. Um, and for me, kinking the hose, my version of it is I ignored my fear. Mm. I just became stoic and arrogant and and tough and manly, right? Like we imagine a fearless man to be, but they're just blank. 
uh, warrior, like, but, but the wrong kind of warrior, like it wasn't, it wasn't like a samurai who's merging with their fear. It's a warrior who's like, like the military were trained to just be emotionless, even when a drill sergeant is yelling at you, just blank. Hmm. And, um, and so that caused some problems for me in that um, I was experiencing a lot of near-death experiences, a lot of my friends dying, um, a lot of avalanches and all sorts of craziness. And over time, I would say that first it was 80, then it was 90, then it was 95% of my experience as a skier was me just blocking out fear. That's how I was spending all my energy. And I burned out because I didn't have much energy left for anything else. I started to resent skiing. Um, I started to dread skiing. Um, my central nervous system was slowly falling apart because the fear was just so trapped there, just agitated going round and round. Um, I became such a rigid person that I started to break. You know, landing these cliffs is really violent. And if you throw a tin can against a rock, it dents, it breaks. I wasn't like a slinky. And so I find that you can get away with resistance to fear for about 10 years tops, and then things start to go south. Hmm. And for me, I had the PTSD, I had the burnout, um, and I, I started getting injured more and more. Those were my consequences for ignoring my fear. And if you look at somebody else, like a, <clears throat> why do we see so much anxiety, so many anxiety disorders in teenagers? Well, if at age four, dad first starts saying there's nothing to be afraid of, by age 14, you're going to have an anxiety disorder. And so 10 years tops is what I found before it starts to really, really be problematic in your life. Now, conversely, I also did some things right by fear. And it's taken me years to figure this out. Um, the two things I did right by fear, and you can see this in almost all risk takers who do incredible things with their lives from leaders in business to Alex Honnold, who free soloed El Capitan. Like I, this is, this is his secret too. And this, this is a secret for, for anybody that takes big risks, but can still sleep at night. Cause not everybody is like this. Like I look at Elon Musk, he definitely has a kink toes. He can't sleep at night. You know, he has to take drugs to sleep. Anyway, this is the secret. First of all, I had a willingness to feel fear. That's the first part. Alex Honnold has a willingness to feel fear. People who take risks have a willingness to feel fear. And feeling, you know, not to, to, I just want to really put an emphasis on the word feel. Not think about fear, but feel fear. The second part is when we're out of our comfort zone, what we have, and this is the magic word, is intimacy with our fear. And if we have intimacy with anything, whether it could be gardening or another human being, it takes us into a flow state. But if you can have intimacy with your fear while you're taking that risk, only the wisdom of that fear will come out. And so next thing you know, because in danger of extreme sports, you have to be in a zone or else you're going to die. You know, basically hit a flow state or you're going to get injured or die. And that's what's so intoxicating about these sports. But the fear is actually the thing that takes us into that flow state. Because with intimacy with it, 
the fear, it's like I'm Batman and fear's Robin. We're stronger together than apart. And I bring my A game to everything that I do. I'm in my body where the fear is. And I am have lightning fast reflexes like a cat. I'm super intuitive. Um, it's, it's like the best part of skiing was the fear. As long as I had intimacy with it. So I had what was a paradox. And can you love and hate fear at the same time? Absolutely. Anybody who's married will tell you that you can love and hate something at the same time. My whole <laughs> world during my ski career was about fear, 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 because I was addicted to it, remember? And, and that's what I was addicted to, not the skiing. And the things that I did right by fear made me the best in the world at my sport for an incredibly long time and kept me safe. The mm. things I did wrong by fear was slowly drip campaign campaign ruining my life. So that's why it's so important to have the healthy relationship with fear and not the unhealthy relationship with fear because it determines whether or not you can sleep at night, whether you can thrive, whether you can expand to your greatest potential or whether you wither and die and just slowly um, become miserable. Mm. So when we're in this healthy relationship to fear, we're feeling intimate with it in the moment we're in that flow state. You said that there's some, we're in touch with the wisdom of it. Um, so does that mean that we're basically, we're following that, that wisdom, which maybe wants us to grow and expand and to move towards our higher potential. So we're allowing it to sort of push us in that direction but also being intimate enough to know where that wisdom sets a limit for us. Is, is that right? Like it's, it's, it's pushing us forward, but it also wise enough to know, okay, if I go beyond this point, I might be putting myself at risk for injury. Well, you said an interesting word. You said allowing it, which suggests more control. Hmm. So it's more like um, just letting it take us uh, well, you know, the language is really, really important. Um, how do I want to phrase this? It's kind of like allowing life to happen. It suggests that we have a choice over that or not have a choice over that. It's almost like in Zen practice, you know, we bow a lot. We, we are like, everything is holy. And we are, it's more about bowing to fear and, and having that dance like lovers, not allowing the dance, but actually being in the dance. And uh, it's, it's very subtle. It's very nuanced. I definitely felt it during my ski career. I definitely feel it in other parts of my life. Um, like in love relationships, for example, or even doing a podcast, or even when I'm about to go on stage and give a speech, I just sit and I feel my fear and I don't allow it to do anything. I just sit and feel my fear and the magic just organically happens. Mm -hmm. um, we're a long ways from that though, aren't hmm. we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let me, let me just outline where fear comes from. And this'll make more sense soon. Fear comes from three resources. 
uh, either just regular everyday life, going to school, just going to kindergarten. I mean, think about that in terms of fear. (laughs) Never mind the rest and taxes and marriage and children. And, you know, I look at people with children. I'm like, oh my God, like that's so, well, actually marriage and children are actually the third one. So there's just regular everyday life fear. And then there's fear that, that you didn't ask for that gets imposed on you from other people, you know, like trauma and crummy people and um, house burning down, you know, uh, from situ other situations, kind of more fear than just regular life fear. Third resource is, is choosing to do bigger things with your life. And I think I'm going to put marriage and children here, starting a business, being an extreme skier, starting a podcast, um, putting yourself out there to try and live your biggest life. So those three resources, um, the amygdala has a heyday on, like cranking out fear, cranking out fear. And I often thought, well, is there a difference between fear that gets imposed on you, like through being mugged at gunpoint or or being abused by a, a stalker versus fear that you choose like to go on a roller coaster or to jump off a cliff or start a podcast. And I realized there is no difference. Fear is just fear. There is no such thing as good or bad fear. Just depending on how you treat the fear determines whether it shows up as a good thing or as a bad thing. And the way to treat fear, you know, again, see it as a person is with love, respect, consideration. Fear wants the same thing every human wants. You know, see it as a person. It wants um, to be seen and understood and invited into our lives, you know, by choosing to take more risks, by being willing to feel fear after a trauma, um, recognizing that it's normal and natural. Of course, it's here. It's going to be my roommate for life. Like if I spend my whole life fighting my roommate, you know, what's that life going to be like? But if I spend my whole life, it's not about letting the fear hang out because that's just disrespectful. That's why I, I I have a hard time with that word. Okay, I'm just going to like saying to fear my roommate, okay, I'm going to let you hang out. It's like, it's disrespectful. It's like, hey, buddy, we got this. I know you make me feel uncomfortable. Good horse moves at even the crack of a whip though. Um, and next thing you know, we have this really symbiotic relationship and it's really clear whether I should jump off this cliff or not jump off this cliff because fear is here advising me. Fear is not preventing me from jumping off the cliff, but it's like, hey, looks like a flat landing. I'm like, hmm, thanks. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm not going to jump off the cliff or, ooh, looks good to go, right? Okay. I have more fear of not jumping off the cliff than of jumping off the cliff. So I jump off the cliff. It's just, it's with us every single moment of every decision we make. But when you have that healthy flowing relationship, it's like having a best friend. It's really, really clear what the wisdom is. And you make really smart, intuitive, on-point choices every time because of the nature of the relationship. Thank you for clarifying that. I mean, it really, it's a different way of existing with it. And I think this, the personification piece is so helpful because I hear what you're saying and in the language, it does point to a subtle, but powerful difference in how we're relating to it on the one in the, on the one hand, it's like, this is how I'm going to, yeah. I mean, manipulate, not manipulate, but there's a, a separation between you and fear. And it's like, I'm the dominant one 
and fear is my whatever, <laughs> my slave or whatever. Yeah, it, we're, we're not. We're its little bitch, not the other way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's that's really helpful. And I just feel like it just makes me think about like just how much wisdom is there uh, with us all of the time that we're not in control of. And if we want to get really kind of meta or woo about it, like there's just so much wisdom from the universe that's with us if we sort of get out of its way. And I don't know, maybe I'm using <laughs> that language again, but like it's, there's something more powerful there and the, the self of like, you know, that, that concrete self, um, that wants to be at the center of the story seems to get in the way of that. Almost if we can step out of the way and allow that to come through, something very cool happens. Right. And you asked for practical tips. And the first one I said was, you got to get to know your relationship with fear. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. It's with us all the time. Even after a 10 day Vipassana retreat, it's still there saying, Hey, and I'm going to outline it into four levels. And I, I feel like if you want to have a healthier relationship with fear, it's a, a journey to move up the levels. And I'm going to start with the worst one first, which is resistance. That's mm -hmm. my word. And when I say get to know your relationship with fear, what I'm saying is get to know your resistance patterns with fear, because we all have them. And uh, resistance is explicitly taught in our culture to fear. And um, if you have an excessive behavior in your life, like shopping, excessive shopping, excessive, excessive eating, ex excessive alcohol, excessive being busy, excessive being in your head, which is the biggest form of resistance to feeling fear that I see, um, then that is a sign of your relationship with fear. It's your resistance pattern. Now, being in your head or going shopping or cleaning the house or drinking alcohol, those are not a signs of resistance to fear. But if it's excessive, that's a sign of resisting fear, overanalyzing, um, I mean, it's, I have a list of, uh, things that we do rather than feel our fear that I, I think I'm at about 120 and counting. Um, there's so many different ways to resist fear. So getting to know that pattern is the first step towards changing it. Um, the second level is acceptance. And a lot of great psychologists are starting to teach acceptance of fear. It's normal and natural. We don't want to resist it because then it'll persist. Um, you want to learn how to feel it, but with level two, too often comes the dreaded comma after that, you know, the, oh, you want to feel your fear comma, but you don't want to let it get the better of you. You right. know, you want to let it go and boom, we ricochet right back to resistance. And so it's a contradictory message. I used to subscribe to the Oprah magazine and they would literally have contradictions on, you need to feel all your feelings in the next day. You can't, you know, you got to let this go And it, <laughs> on the next page. And it was like that page after page, after page, after page, the contradiction of ricocheting us back right to level one. So acceptance is, is part of the journey and acceptance is good for heady people because then they can intellectually at least understand something you know, like if somebody's listening to this podcast and intellectually learning something about themselves and their relationship with fear, and that fear is actually a good thing, like that's level two. 
but they're still not at level three, which is feeling it. Mm. Now, once we start to feel our fear, because we don't really know how to do this level three feel, because that's what emotions want. They want to be felt. Most people get down to the business of feeling their resistance to the emotions. Mm. I don't want to feel this. And resistance is kind of a form of fear, but it's like fear of fear or fear of sadness or resistance to anger or like, and so what tends to happen in level three feeling is they just start to feel their resistance to the emotion itself. And they think that this is progress, but they're just back in level one. So when I work with people, I, I really let them indulge in the resistance to feeling their emotions. Like I have a client that just hates her discomfort so much. And I just let her hate it. I just let right. her feel hatred for that emotion. I let her feel, you know, I, I encourage her to just feel the resistance all the way. Cause we, we want to honor the resistance too. We could see that as another person. Right. Um, so, but too often feeling our emotions just shows up as feeling our resistance to the emotions and we're still back at level one. Right. So, so helpful for people, if they find themselves in resistance, let's say, or maybe even you're in resistance and then you, have a sense of acceptance and feeling your emotions. And then you notice yourself resisting again, just start there is what you're saying. Just start with feeling the resistance because that in itself is a form of openness and acceptance and not trying to get anything to go away. Right. It's like the fear of fear. So you're kind of there, but you're not, it's like a jacket that you you're have to be wearing for a little while before you can get to the layers beneath. Mm -hmm. So, um, but ultimately what we want to do is get to the point where we just feel not only our fear, but our sa sadness, our anger, and our unworthiness, our feelings of I'm not enough. And even indulge in our thoughts. We're also trying to control our mind. We're not just trying to control our fear and our emotions. We're also trying to control our minds too. So we now have a war against our minds. So um, it could also just be think, you know, just let the mind do its thing, let fear, um, or uh, again, I'm trying to be careful with the language, but just feel fear. And you can tell the difference, you know, when you get it right, because a picture like a, a puppy, if you're in resistance to the puppy, what, what kind of experience is that, right? Oh, right. Ooh, don't want to go near that smelly creature. If we accept the puppy, we're still not in a love state with the puppy we're like okay the puppy's just the puppy the puppy you know great um if we feel the puppy we're now having a physical experience with them we're not thinking about feeling the puppy we're actually touching the puppy and we're feeling the puppy and we're having something that's going to lead to an intimate experience with the puppy and, and anybody that's ever had an, a pet a cat or a dog or a horse or what have you an iguana right <laughs> a snake <laughs> have had an intimate experience with their their pet so and it starts in many ways with touch with feeling with with going on the inside into our bodies of just a sensation that we have that we feel when we're around this animal so it's the same thing with like feeling feeling it and what is intimacy which is level four is like with great lovers giving and receiving at the same time. I can feel you feeling me and together we are one. And 
I feel like, well, what I've learned is that if you're in level three and you're just really feeling, just feeling and, you know, crying, you know, during my breakup and just feeling just that awful feeling in my chest, it's physical. And if I spend enough time there, it just leads organically to intimacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. So it's, we're talking about resistance, acceptance, feeling, and then, and then there's a fourth and maybe you said it, but I might've missed it. Intimacy. Is Intimacy. Like, yeah. yeah. And that's where yeah. the magic lies. Hmm. And that's where flow happens. Yeah. Yes. And Dogen Zenji is a great Zen master that lived about 900 years ago. And he said, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Well, we don't use the word enlightenment anymore. It's an, you know, maybe in some spiritual circles, the buzzword these days is flow that doesn't, you know, isn't like a bucket of ice water on people's heads. Like enlightenment can be flow, which is what everybody wants is intimacy with all things. Hmm. And I mean, it's great to be intimate with nature, um, intimate with the snow and the sun, intimate with another person, intimate with the dog, with the snake, <laughs> intimate with the wind and the sunshine, the joy, intimacy with joy, intimacy with our breathing. But do we ever think about being intimate with our self-doubt, our fear, our anger, our sadness, our disappointment, our pain? You know, uh, intimacy with pain is interesting. People who get tattoos, if they're in resistance to the pain, we know what that looks like. Ouch. But if we have, if they have intimacy with the pain, it takes them into a spiritual place. There are people who get addicted to getting tattoos because of the place that it takes them spiritually. What do we see with um, sweat lodges? Intimacy with the heat takes us into a spiritual place. Resistance to the heat, not so good. Not good for you. Right. Um, Wim Hof, intimacy with the cold, spiritual place. The same goes with intimacy with our fear. It's a spiritual experience. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's the best heroin I've ever found. <laughs> it's so <laughs> good. And maybe it's disrespectful for me to call it heroin, but it, it really did become a problem for me. You know, I was so addicted to those flow states that I had from that intimacy with fear. And, and I've been learning since then to have intimacy with other experiences besides my fear. Um, but I, I do know that that's what the magic was for me back in the day. And I've, I've run intimacy with fear by 26 of my peers, fellow extreme danger sports athletes and like Alex Hunnell, Laird Hamilton, Conrad Anker, people like this, big, big names in danger sports. And when I first start talking to them, I say, what is your relationship with fear? And I would say 95% of the time, they have no idea. These are the poster children for what to do about fear. They have no idea. Hmm. And when I explained intimacy with fear, that's the magic. Almost all of them shook their heads. Yes, that's it. So hard. I thought they were going to break their necks. Like that is the secret hmm. to people who do incredible things with their lives and can still sleep at night. And that is the secret to resolving an anxiety disorder. It's a secret to sleeping better at night. It's the secret to um, 
being real raw and honest with ourselves about who we are as human beings and coming into form as our greatest potential on this planet, not despite the fear, but because of the fear. Kristen, you've talked about how you help to broker these conversations between people and their fear. Where does that come in in this process of getting intimate with fear? Does that come in at the beginning? Does that come in once we're starting to actually feel the fear in our body? And what do those conversations sound like? With every client I work with, I start by broking a conversation between them and their fear. I, I actually started out as a mindset sports coach and and uh, everyone that came to me, you know, whether the, whatever the problem was, I found that helping them have a better relationship with fear solved it, not just athletically, but when I started working with people that weren't athletes, you know, it didn't matter what it was, chronic UTIs, um, fighting with their husband, like it didn't matter what the, the problem was, a better relationship with fear either completely solve the problem or 90% solve the problem. And so how I do that is using voice dialogue, I will ask to speak to their voice of fear. And fear will use their mind, their brain, their mouth in order to communicate with me. And I'll ask fear questions like, hey, you know, where do you live in Matthew's body? Um, what kind of relationship does he have with you? Does he like you? Uh, no, he sees me as a problem to be solved. Okay, well, how does he treat you? Who does he become in order to ignore you? Like, based on what I find, I just start asking questions and mm -hmm. fear answers those questions. So going back to the beginning, at the beginning of our podcast, I said, none of what I've just spoke about is my personal philosophy. Everything that I've just shared is something that's come directly from fear's mouth, by using voice dialogue, I've asked them, like, what do you want? Well, I want to be felt, you know, um, what does that look like? Well, it looks like finding me in my, in his body and, and learning how to have an intimate relationship with me. Are you so bad? Well, he thinks I'm bad because I'm screaming and yelling at him, but I'm just really upset because I'm trapped in the basement and I'm just I can't see, I can't breathe, I can't hear. He's ignoring me. He's pretending he doesn't, I don't exist. Everybody on the planet hates me. You know, like I'm pretty freaking upset at this point and I will not be denied and I'm going to get out in whatever way I can, even if it's the form of a panic attack until these people start treating me right, including Matthew. And then they'll say, okay, well, what can we do to treat you right? So I just kept asking fear questions with each of my clients. I mean, I've facilitated thousands, if not tens of thousands of people now. And, and everything I've come up with has been directly from fear's mouth. And then I just slowly help that client take fear out of the basement or, or let it speak or let it kind of be, um, and it, it starts with letting, right? Because there's a lot of control and trying to manage it. And a lot of people take pills to shut it up and, and you name it, drink alcohol, run away from it. Um, like my, my boyfriend, you know, he's, he's, he's just has too much fear in his life and being in a relationship with me just means more fear. And so he's not so much running away from me as he's running away from fear. I scare him, you know, it's like, he's, he's not willing to go into the fear. He's only wanting to run away. 
And, and I've done the same thing too. It's like getting to know that relationship and making it better and, and helping um, the, the person I'm facilitating see that relationship and what needs to change in order to make it a healthier relationship, a better relationship, more symbiotic relationship is what these conversations are always about. Wow. It's, um, it's fascinating to think how much this permeates almost everything. As you say, can I ask you one more question about that? An area that it, it fear shows up that where we might not be recognizing it at all. Um, just around health stuff for people, you mentioned, you know, back pain and headaches and maybe other chronic diseases that people are having, but um, can you help us maybe see a little bit how fear might be playing a role in the manifestation of maybe some chronic health problem that someone's experiencing? I have a lot of clients that hire me to help them with health problems that they know are related to um, their emotions or as I can see their unwillingness to feel their emotions. Like I had a, a woman, I mentioned a chronic UTIs and she had been molested as a child. So that's um, fear that was imposed on her from somebody else. And, uh, and she had repressed her sexuality as a result. And sexuality is seen actually as an emotion. Um, she had repressed um, just the, the, the experience of it and the emotions of it. And she just felt like the UTIs were probably 90% emotional, maybe even a hundred percent emotional. She wasn't sure like 10% maybe physical. And, um, and, uh, she just kept taking antibiotics for, for decades and, um, again and again and again. And so I facilitate her. It doesn't take very long. And I asked to speak to her sexuality. I asked to speak to her fear, other emotions. I asked to speak to the little vulnerable child that was going through the experience. And I just start, kept asking questions like, what's going on? Why are you showing up in her um, causing these UTIs? Um, and I actually spoke to the UTI itself, the infection, and said, what, why are you here? And uh, what we came up with is that she uh, was not in flow. It was just stuck trying to get her attention, all of these emotions and feelings. And, and um, they're screaming at her, pay attention to me, you know, stop treating me medically, treat me emotionally. And we got her back in flow with feeling her emotions, had her connect intimately with these. And her UTI stopped. It's unbelievable. I have a million examples like this. I, I actually, after my divorce, because my ex-husband had been very um, abusive, I had uh, vertigo. And I, and I knew that it was emotional. I had, you know, you could look at my neck x-ray and see that my neck was seriously compromised. But I spent two minutes one day, took me two years to get here. And this is what I do for a living, just feeling my um, despair and fear around losing him and, and how bad he treated me. And my, um, vertigo went away probably 90% immediately. This is the power of just even having a, a couple minutes of being in flow with our emotions. Um, you know, I also had somebody that would get migraines and the migraine was a resistance migraine. Like, no, 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 no. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. Right. 
And I just had her as also a woman, um, just have intimacy with her pain, her headache, and it went away immediately. Instead of taking a couple of days, it took a minute. So when you, instead of resist the thing, either the pain or the thing that's the emotion that's um, part of the pain, the, the pain of the emotion, and, and shift, it's very counterintuitive though, and shift into that intimacy, the feeling it and intimacy with it. It is unbelievable how fast things that are um, um, resistance-based start to heal. Mm. It's, it's crazy. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. It's so rewarding. So someone's listening to this and they're like, yes, like I, this makes like so much sense. And I, this resonates with me. This is the direction that I want to move in, getting more intimate with my fear. What is, what's the the first little baby step that you would recommend? What's something that just someone could start inching into that direction that they could start doing, you know, immediately? Well, the four levels, first resistance, understand your resistance patterns. Like I was talking about before, like really hunker down, getting to know them. Um, and I, I won't even give you that as the start baby step that that is the baby step. That is the first step. It's no small thing though. You know, it's basically unraveling the entirety of your patterns, your personality and your life, because your relationship with fear pretty much determines everything, including your level of risk-taking or intolerance to risk. Um, so get to know those patterns. Um, the second thing is uh, moving up the levels, acceptance, like really acknowledging and, and keep in mind the roommate, like, okay, I know you're here, you're normal and natural. I'm not going to get rid of you. I can't get rid of you. I can't let you go. I can't breathe you away. I can't replace you with calm. You're here with me for life. Like taking a real raw inventory on the role that fear plays in our lives is the next step. The third step is how do you have a great relationship with anyone? Well, you, you give it some respect and consideration and take some time to get to know it. And, and, uh, and emotions want to be felt you learn how to feel it. And how you do that is you, you close your eyes and you go into your body and you look for any kind of discomfort, even if it's lower back pain or tension in your shoulders, could be feeling more emotional, um, could be hurt. Don't get caught up on the word fear, just any kind of feeling of discomfort in your body, find it. Could be in your mind, could be in your thoughts. Fear may just be in your head all the time because you're in your head all the time. That's where it's now living in order to get your attention. So just notice where it lives and then just start to connect with it. Um, if it's thoughts, think the thoughts. If it's a feeling, feel the feeling. And always know that it's intimacy that you're going for. And uh, don't overthink intimacy. You know it when you feel it. You know, we've all had an experience of intimacy with a piece of cheesecake or the wind on a summer day or intimacy with a dog. We, we know how to do this. You can't understand this. This is like when you're having the best sex of your life, you don't stop and say, well, wait a second. I need to figure out what's going on here. I need to take notes. No, you <laughs> lose the experience, right? You got to just, you just got to be in it. Just become it. You know, it's like lose yourself in it and you know, when you got it right. And that's the, how to get there basically. I love it. I love it. 
Um, Kristen, thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom and I don't even want to say, I mean, it's, it's knowledge, but it's, it's more than that. I think people hopefully absorb this, not just on an intellectual level, but on a body level, maybe even while they were listening to this conversation started to feel a little bit more intimate with their body sensations. So thank you so much for holding space and being a facilitator for that during our conversation. Um, where else can people find you, follow your work, or is there anything else coming up? I know you're giving a talk in September in New York, but how can people keep track of you and what you're up to? KristenOlmer.com on my homepage, I have a free fear and anxiety assessment that will help you get to know your relationship with fear. It's 20 questions. It's super fascinating. You'll have insights just taking the test, and then you'll get really practical tips after taking that test. Reach out to me, check out my work. You know, it's all over. I have a, a, a art of anxiety workshop coming up September 8th through 10th. I, I think, I don't know if you, this will come out before then, but um, it's, that's the best thing I do. It's in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, come find me. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you again, Kristen. Really, really appreciate you. And I also just wanted to call out and name just all of your authenticity um, that you bring into this conversation and honesty and everything. It's definitely appreciated and really helps to um, get the message across to people. So thank you for showing up as you. And it's scary. <laughs> exactly. Well, who but better to model thing, that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Middle Way. If you find this content valuable and want to support the podcast, leaving a rating, review, or sharing the episode is hugely helpful and appreciated and helps the podcast get discovered by more people. If you have any questions, ideas, feedback, or ideas for future guests, please send an email to hello at the-middle-way.com. See you soon.